how we hedge our risk through the affordable housing strategy, we're, we're typically buying deals that have, call it, 15 years of remaining restrictions on it. We're also, again, agnostic to that. We, they could have 100 years left as long as the economics of the underlying deal work. But, but a typical deal might have 15 years of affordability restrictions left. And let's just use an example. We recently bought a deal in, in a suburb of Seattle, and the in-place rents were about a dollar a square foot, and, and that's restricted. So you cannot increase those beyond a dollar a foot. You get moderate annual increases that are allowed by HUD, but the market itself is about $1.40 a square foot. So there's about, call it 40%, uh, market rents are about 40% higher than where our rents are. So our thesis there is that when rents decline and there is a softening in the economy, there's not going to be a dollar for dollar decline in rents between the market rate deals and ours. They'll have a much more, they'll, they'll fall off dramatically more than we will um, as a result of being more expensive than us. So there's some protection there on, on the top line of your, on your rent. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards educating investors and entrepreneurs who want to break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to explore, dissect, and interview the cream of the crop when it comes to real estate investing here in the United States. And the reason that I do that is so I can educate you guys, so you guys can go out and make the right decisions when it comes to investing for cash flow to create long-term wealth and financial freedom. If you are new to this show, then welcome. I welcome you to this show and I encourage you to go back and start from the beginning and work your way through each and every episode and listen to the incredible content that my guests have given to this show. You can find this show on all the platforms, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, wherever you podcast, I will be. Remember to hit subscribe and each and every week you'll be notified when the latest cracking episode is launched. Before we dive into today's show and I introduce you to the cracking entrepreneur, remember that I do have a free ebook. And if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, it is pretty simple. Firstly, all you need to do is jump on iTunes and leave the show a review. It helps to show iTunes that we're creating an awesome community of entrepreneurs who want to learn more about investing here in the United States. Once you've left that comment, on iTunes, shoot me a screenshot of that comment to info, that's I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com. And in return, I will send you my brand spanking new ebook called The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. And it is the book, a very simple ebook, which is set up to change your mindset about the benefits of raising capital to start going out and getting more deals done. And the four Ps are pretty simple. It is professionalism. It is pitch practice and patience. Those four Ps are the things that I've seen in myself and in other successful syndicators who go out and raise capital successfully. Remember, if you want to get your hands on this free ebook, 
jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, then shoot me the screenshot at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. Also, remember, spots are filling up really quickly in my mentorship program here in 2017. And if you want to start learning about how to successfully close on your first multifamily deal, then this mentorship program is for you. I walk you through the A to Z of multifamily investing, from analyzing and choosing the right markets, to building your right team, to close how to close on a deal and obtain the best financing. And to top it all off, I give you the tools to start raising capital successfully as a newbie so you can get more deals done and you can grow your net worth. I help you establish your inner key person of influence and help you create a cracking personal brand. If you are interested in taking that next step and you want to get involved in my mentorship program, it's pretty easy. Again, shoot me an email at info, the I-N-F-O at rsnpropertygroup.com and put in the subject line, mentorship program. Okay, lastly, if you do have any comments or feedback for this show, I love hearing from my loyal listeners. And the easiest way you can do that is jump on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. And remember to leave some comments in the show section of any of the shows that you do like. I love hearing from you guys. It helps me create an even better show and it helps me motivate to you know create, giving you the best content that I possibly can. So you guys can go out there and start successfully investing here in the United States. All right, guys, let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jason Post. Jason is the founder of Post Investment Group, an opportunistic real estate investment company based here in sunny Los Angeles, California. Throughout his career, Jason has acquired, owned, and operated in excess of 25,000 apartment units, which equates to approximately $1.5 billion in value. So without further ado, let's get him out here. G'day, Jason. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm doing great. Thank you. So Jason, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show, can you elaborate a little bit on your background and the mind shift change that you know persuaded you to take up real estate investing full time and, and start the post investment group? Uh, sure. So um, it, my, my background, I've always known I've wanted to be a, a businessman or an entrepreneurial uh, individual. I, uh, it was for me, it was more a function of, of not it was a function of what it was I was going to do, not a function of whether or not I was going to be an entrepreneur. So at, uh, when I was 24 years old, I, uh, I picked a industry vertical. I, I started buying coin-operated laundromats in low-income neighborhoods around Los Angeles. And when I was 27, I realized that's not what I wanted to do when I was 37. So I, uh, when I was 27, I acquired an eight-unit apartment building in Los Angeles. And uh, kind of off to the races from there. The the rest is history. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. I post investment group. I, I assume came out of that coin laundry operator business in the early days. Um, no, no, it didn't actually. I founded Post Investment Group ten years ago. So uh, my first, my predecessor real estate company was with a group of guys who really their responsibility was to raise capital, and mine was to acquire, you know, find opportunity and uh, acquire it and manage it. So we had a management platform and, um, you know, but I ran the day-to-day operations of the business. And then five years after the founding of that company, we were selling the majority of our assets. It was late cycle. This was the, the cycle prior to the current one, uh, 2006 and seven. And then um, started Post Investment Group in 2007 with the initial focus to, uh, to, to, to acquire more institutional assets, but in, the, in a distressed environment. 
Right, right. And I'm sure we're going to get into that a little bit more later on in the show. But today's show is all about understanding where we are in the economic cycle. You just briefly touched on the fact that you started your company uh, just before the cycle, uh, this current cycle. So from your point of view, where do you think we are in the economic cycle for multifamily investing today? So I think we're in the eighth or ninth inning, but the problem is I think we're going to go into extra innings. So I think it's going to be a protracted cycle. And as a result, the bubble that's uh, starting to, to build up is going to get bigger. And when it pops, it's going to hopefully fall, uh, it'll be a harder, you know, a louder pop and, and create more opportunity for people to get into the next cycle. Right, right. And so what type of metrics do you look at when you're evaluating where we are that you say we're in the ninth innings uh, with, with potential to go into extra time? What are you looking at now to make sure that to keep an eye on on where we're headed in, in particularly in 2017 and in, in 2018? Yeah, so I mean, I'm a big believer in, in history as a predictor of the future. So uh, the four metrics that we look at are rent, occupancy, interest rates, and cap rates. And if you look at those, and uh, they're they're at historical highs. So rents are at historical highs, occupancy, historical highs, interest rates, historical lows, and cap rates are historical lows. So when you, if you, if you move any one of those pieces, if you move cap rates up or interest rates up, values come down. Um, occupancies and rents, I mean, occupancy at, at 95 plus percent on a national level, in our opinion, is an unsustainable number. Rents are so far off the mean, the, the historical average mean, you know, uh, moderate correction results in a dramatic decrease in value. So those are the four primary metrics. I'd say a new metric now I'm now kind of adding to my mix is unemployment. We're, we're heading towards historically low unemployment, full employment. You know, unemployment rate nationally is in the 4% range. Where do you go from there? You don't go down from there. So whereas low unemployment is a great thing, I just, I just see every metric that we look at is, has peaked. Yep, I completely agree with all those statements because I think, as you said, you, you, you tweak any one of those four or five handful of, of, of metrics, you can dramatically change the value of your property. So with that being said, you know, we're approaching the 10-year mark since 2008, the Great Recession. The big question on everyone's lips is where are we headed? Uh, you know, when, when are we heading for a net, next downturn? Is it going to be, do you think it's going to be moderate? Do you think it's going to be as big as 20, uh, 2008? Um, and if so, next two years, next three years? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what are you sort of, what's your gut feel right now? Yeah. So let, let me start with the moderate versus dramatic. I, <laughs> I hope it's dramatic. You know, we, I hope it's dramatic, right? It creates an opportunity. Um, I don't think it will be. And the reason is because in 2008, the issue was, was, was a real estate issue. It wasn't a, it, the, the issue was the, the global economy was affected by banks propping up the real estate community by just easy money. So I don't think that the next economic downturn will be necessarily caused by overlending into the real estate community or overbuilding. So I don't, uh, I'm not expecting the next correction to be nearly as dramatic and severe as the, current, the prior one. I mean, liquidity was the big issue last cycle. I don't think that we're going to have a major liquidity crisis. There's too much money on the sidelines at the moment. So, and in terms of, you know, in terms of when I would have thought it would have happened by now, I think that Donald Trump, and which you know we could elaborate on a little more later, I think he's whether you like him or hate him, it doesn't matter. I think he's breathed some optimism, some maybe unfounded optimism, uh, into the uh, into the market. Um, you know, his if he if he reforms taxes the way he says he's going to do, and um, you know it's just going to create it. It could continue to. Um, 
to, to further propagate the, or delay the, the downturn in the cycle. Right. So sort of like chugging along at this pace of, of high rents, low occupancy, low unemployment is probably foreseeable for the next 12 to 18 months, right, in, in, in what you're saying. Maybe more. Yeah, or maybe more. Right, right. So we, with, you know, you touched briefly on, on Donald Trump and how, um, you know, how people have been perceiving him. I know I raise a bit of money from, from international investors or, or quite a substantial portion of my investors are international. Some of them were hesitant. How have you seen that the new administration in terms of investing here in the, in the United States change, if any? Um, and, and, and as you just sort of, and maybe elaborate a little bit more on what you mentioned about breathing some life into where we are right now in, in the cycle. Yeah, so when we all woke up the morning after the election, it was uh, we were all we were all pretty. Uh, no, no one was project predicting that this would happen, and it was pretty uh, pretty unbelievable. I remember watching watching election night and the stock market futures, you know, falling off a cliff, and then the next morning the stock market's up, right? So people are still pro- they had to process this 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 whole change. I remember reading his web, I remember reading the Trump website that night of the election when I realized he was going to win and saying, oh my God, now I've got to take this serious. What is he promising? What is he really saying? And uh, so, so two major, major things that have influenced real estate are, are, are actually one is put a chill through part of the real estate sector that we play in. And the other one is put the, uh, you know, added some uh, steam to it. So the conventional world, the you know conventional multifamily world, which most people play in, it's put some additional optimism in. People think that banking regulations will get laxed up, meaning more you know easier easier money into the into the system. Uh, people think that unemployment rates will continue to go down. Maybe there'll be some inflation. So all of these are are factors that put put more money into the cycle into the into the conventional world and um, is creating uh, more value. Conversely, we also participate in the low-income housing tax credits sector of the market. We um, that industry was put on ice, and it's falling out slowly at the moment. And the reason is because of Donald Trump's tax proposed tax reform change, where he's going to drop corporate tax rates from 35 to percent uh, to, to who knows. And as a result, the tax credit world thrives off of 35 percent effective corporate tax rates. So that market has uh, been put pretty much was was put on ice as soon as the election occurred. After right. The election results were out. Right, and and I know I have heard you speak on a couple of other podcasts, and and we'll get into that in a little bit. But how, did that change your? Did you had to come in the next day after the election and and reevaluate what you're doing with your current investment strategy? Yeah, absolutely, unequivocally, and and furthermore, created volatility in the specifically in the tax credit market. Um, which creates opportunity. Volatility is a good thing, in my opinion, in real estate. We don't get a lot of volatility. So uh, it created some buying opportunities for us late last year, late 2016, from people that had to drop their affordable housing deals because they no longer made economic sense because the way tax credit pricing was uh, hampered. So that was part of our strategic shift. The other one was, you know, what are we, we had an asset that we had listed for sale which we ended up pulling off the market because interest rates rose, treasuries rose. Now they've since come back down and interest rates remain low as well as you know, spreads on top of interest rates. So effectively, we're still borrowing 10-year money from Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac in, in the mid fours or even less than that in some cases. So um, that was another, another dynamic where uh, 
but 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 that's more that's evened out quite a bit. The 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 market for, for conventional deals has evened out quite a bit. We also as a result of thinking that the market's going to have a little more some more lag is where we just look at every deal a little differently, knowing that the, and we can elaborate a little bit more as to in terms of strategies that we're getting into as a result of the fact that we think the cycle has a, some more legs to it. Yep, and I want to definitely dive into that. But before we do, you briefly spoke a little bit about interest rates, and and from my point of view, my business is you know raising capital from from international investors. There was some hesitancy, and and I felt it as well, even with looking at deals that I'm I'm looking at more conventional deals that are coming on the market in early 2017, late 2016. It seemed to be a bit of a dry spell. I I, I don't know if that's you know general a general a generality, but the fact is there was some hesitancy there just to see what was going to happen with those interest rates and, and was it going to skyrocket and cause all this un, un, unrest? So with a rising interest rate, the Feds have risen it a couple of times. What are you seeing? You're still sort of borrowing. You say you're borrowing money at 4.5% from Freddie and Fannie. Are you predicting it to go up? Are you underwriting it with you know the worst case scenario that it could continue to rise and, and that will infect, you know, affect your investments right now? Yeah, so so we're not we're not predicting anything, right? We're not economists, but we are protecting and hedging, um, expecting that it should go up, right? So they should. Uh, you know, we're at or near historical lows on interest rates. So we do, and this kind of dubs into dives into our overall investment strategy. We when we started Post Investment Group in two thousand and seven, it was a short term investment strategy. Or two thousand eight, when we were buying distressed deals, and you're buying you know, challenging assets, putting a lot of money into fixing them up. Those are typically short-term horizon deals, one, two, really two, three, four-year holds. Um, And the cycle permits at that point. You know, your cycle is, you're coming out, you're rebounding. So you've got the wind at your back. At this late inflection point of the cycle, we're positioning all of our deals as 10-year holds, and and frankly, even longer. And and, and it's not just where we are in the cycle as much as it's where I am in my career. Um, We're we're looking at much longer-term holds. So as a result of that, we're putting on long-term fixed rate debt. And furthermore, it doesn't really matter for us at the end of 10 years if interest rates are at 10%. I mean, in theory, it matters a little bit because we're going to have to refinance our deals. But we're less impacted by residual values as we are downside protecting our deals in the near term in the event in for when, not just in the event, for when the correction does occur. Right. Very, very interesting stuff. And I think that is a, is an incredible segue into those types of strategies and, and the markets that you're investing in right now to you know align with your investment strategy for a longer term hold, long term fixed rates to then you know hedge your risk against the, the rising interest rate, which inevitably will happen, which I completely agree with. So, so where are you investing right now, given where we are in today's uh, cycle and, and, and world? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, we're market agnostic. It's more strategy specific. Our our footprint, we're currently in 10 states, 15 plus cities. We like to say we're Texas to the West. That being said, I'm getting ready to get on a plane to getting ready to get on a plane to head out to North Carolina. It's a market I've been looking at since the last cycle. We've never pulled the trigger there. But but strategy, one of our strategies, which is the affordable housing strategy we have, low income housing tax credits, um, has set up a potential opportunity for us. And as a result, we're looking in, you know, we're looking and expanding our footprint into, into that market. So I would say, uh, you know, we're, we're market agnostic, but, you know, more strategy specific. Nice, nice. And, and speaking of strategy specific, you, for all these people out there who don't understand, or, you know, give us a layman's explanation of tax credit 
investing um, and what you're doing right now and how that is hedging your risk uh, against uh, rising interest rates and also, you know, whether it be rubs or, you know, are locking in uh, an investment where the surrounding neighborhoods maybe have a higher rent because you are capped at a certain rent that you can charge your, your tenants. Yeah, so, so the LIHTC strategy, the low income housing tax credit strategy right now, um, I'll, I'll get into the layman's understanding in a moment. That, that could be a podcast in and of itself. <laughs> You know, to discuss that that whole in that whole world, how we hedge our risk through the affordable housing strategy. We're, we're typically buying deals that have, call it, 15 years of remaining restrictions on it. We're also, again, agnostic to that. We they could have 100 years left as long as the economics of the underlying deal work. But but a typical deal might have 15 years of affordability restrictions left. And let's just use an example. We recently bought a deal in in a suburb of Seattle, and the in place rents were about a dollar a square foot. And, and that's restricted. So you cannot increase those beyond a dollar a foot. You get moderate annual increases that are allowed by HUD, but the market itself is about $1.40 a square foot. So there's about, call it 40%, uh, market rents are about 40% higher than where our rents are. So our thesis there is that when rents decline and there is a softening in the economy, there's not going to be a dollar for dollar decline in rents between the market rate deals and ours. They'll have a much more, they'll, they'll fall off dramatically more than we will um, as a result of being more expensive than us. So there's some protection there on, on the top line of your, on your rents. Um, in terms of then, furthermore, we'll finance these with low leverage, these deals. And so we really have no risk whatsoever during the hold period of ever losing the asset to a lender. Our debt service coverage ratios are, are, are 2X uh, and above. And then, if we do need to sell one of these assets, if interest rates rise and cap rates rise as a result, our thesis is that the cap rate for these affordable deals will not rise basis point for basis point like affordable deals, excuse me, like conventional deals will, because at the end of the 15 years, you can burn off, you, you, the, the rental restrictions go away and you can raise rents 40%. So someone will pay us in the way of a depressed cap rate, a lower cap rate, um, Someone will pay us for that upside in the future. So you basically get a you get it, it you get twofold. You get downside protection in terms of value degradation and protection on your cap rate not uh, not rising, uh, but like a conventional deal will. Now the downside is you're restricted in terms of how much you can rent your units for. So if you have inflation, you're not necessarily inflation protected because rents in the market could raise 10% a year, where your rents could our rents could raise. 2% and our expenses could raise 5%, that would be a squeeze and that could impact us. But we, 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 that's why we put on low leverage and have high DSCR coverage so we can definitely hold um, the asset through any sort of squeeze period that may arise. Interesting. And and from the, the tax advantage point of view, and I, I don't want to dive too far into it because as you said, it could be a whole uh, episode in itself. So you're holding for that small amount of cash flow. You're, you're not you're not going in and quote unquote adding doing a value add reposition where you're increasing rents as you said forty percent and putting in rubs and all that good stuff. You're just sort of going in more there, tweaking the, the knobs and holding for that for that cap rate compression in the future, correct? And along the way, you're going to get some some tax advantages uh, for that, right? Yeah, we typically hold these deals for the 40% top in rents 15 years out. Now, there are different strategies. So, for example, I mentioned I was going to probably get on a plane next week to go to North Carolina. The deal I'm looking at there is distressed. It has an, I should say, where it has an element not of distress, but of value add. 
So the rents in place are 19% below the maximum tax credit rents that you can charge. So there is an opportunity there to raise rents by that 19% by putting some money and some management uh, muscle into the deal. So there, so situationally, there are opportunities. You, you have to ask yourself, though, this late in the cycle, every tax credit deal should be at max tax credit rents. Um, about seven, you know, six, seven years ago when we first got into the space, every single tax credit deal was below max tax credit rents. So, you know, we have, we're doing our due diligence on the opportunity to find out what is really going on here. And, and we have a suspicion as to what it is, and uh, we're, we're in, it's uncertain as to whether or not we can fix it. So that's part of our DD process to see whether or not we want to buy the underlying property. Sure, sure. So with all that being said, given you know the, the ebbs and flows of the market cycle, how do you like or how does your investment strategy change? You, you, you're, now, you're now very much focused in the tax credit space, given where we are in the cycle. But say early, early cycle periods or, or, or the highs or the lows, what are you doing and how are you slightly repositioning yourself as an investment group to, to look at other assets, but also not just other assets, but also other multifamily um, investment opportunities? Um, are we talking about pre-cycle? Are we talking about early cycle or currently? A, a little bit more of a, maybe walk us through what you started in 2000. It started in 2008. What were sure. you buying? It transitioned into uh, a certain type of asset or, or type of multifamily. And now you're coming at the tail end of the cycle. You're into you know tax credit stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, so in 2008, we were buying everything we could that was distressed. We were buying from special servicers, REO, uh, lenders, we were buying notes, we were, we were chasing deals through bankruptcy courts. So we bought everything we could that had distress on it. We also bought everything we could that didn't have distress on it from distressed sellers like the GEs or the Blacks, uh, Black Rocks of the world that had to sell deals because they had to rebalance their uh, debt equity ratios. So you know, early cycle, it was, it was about distress or buying from distressed assets or distressed sellers. We bought everything from 0% occupancy apartment communities in Austin, Texas, that we picked up for 15000 a unit that needed another 15000 a unit in investment. We picked up failed land, uh, land deals, which were entitled, but um, that were basically failed development packages, which we, um, half of which we bought and half of which we ended up flipping and not, um, excuse me, half of which we built and half of which we ended up flipping just as the package as the cycle cured. We, uh, so that was the next kind of piece of our business. So we went from distressed to building to uh, doing a lot of value add deals back in you know 2011 and when the when the value add that was done in the prior cycle the 2006 value add deals had lost their tarnish because those value add strategies in my opinion last about five to seven years before you have to come back in and and, and really put new uh, lipstick on the pig <laughs> so um and then in 2011, we started buying uh, affordable deals, and there were a lot of distressed affordable deals. So that was what enabled us to to continue doing distressed deals. And then distress went away in 2012 and 2013. Anything that was distressed at that point uh, usually was just a broken asset altogether or a broken market and, and was never going to fix itself. We started buying some core deals, some core plus deals, newer vintage. We, we started the business and our average vintage was uh, 1970s construction. Now we're in the late 90s, if you, maybe even pushing 2000 construction is, is our average vintage right now. So, um, you know, uh, we've been, been riding the wave with the affordable business, even though that's incredibly competitive. I mean, it's a, it's a totally efficient market right now. There's very few opportunities in our opinion, uh, even in the affordable world. So now we're looking at manufactured housing. Um, we, we're, we're thinking maybe there's an opportunity there this late in the cycle to make some very small bets 
scattered around uh, ge ge you know, geographically. We're also, we've acquired some industrial buildings with that kind of last mile theory of being, you know, being uh, the shift, the, demo you know, the, the, the demo demographic shift from retail to industrial, but not looking to scale that platform as well. So really not looking to scale anything at this point. It's really just treading water until the cycle ends. Right. No, that's, I think one takeaway piece of advice, just what you said just there was, you, people may be looking for quote-unquote value-add in this late in the cycle, but it may just be if it's if it's this late in the cycle and it's value-add, it could also just be a, a broken asset, as you said, or a broken market. So just be very, very word – word of caution to people out there looking for, for distressed multifamily to go and add a ton of values that you may just also be picking up a, a crappy deal, right? <laughs> so um, yeah. just, just be very, very careful. Uh, so do you think, in your opinion, have we seen the best 10 years of multifamily investing in history – since 2008? I don't know. Um, I would love to ask that question myself to people who acquired deals out of the SNL crisis in, in 19, you know, the mid eighties. Right. I mean, that was the last crisis of liquidity, true crisis of liquidity um, that sustained itself. And I know people who are you know, 10, 15, 20 years older than me who, who, you know, made a killing uh, by buying broken assets all around the country for $5,000 a unit and that are worth $100,000 a unit now. And I think that it was probably a slow go after that for them, not as quite of a dramatic hockey stick recovery as we've had after 2008. But I think that was probably the single greatest buying opportunity um, in history of real estate. But uh, 2008 is, is, is probably uh, neck and neck with it. It was a phenomenal opportunity. I hope we have another one. I don't think we're going to have another opportunity like this for at least another decade, but I'm a young guy. I'll, I'll wait it out. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Great stuff. We talked a little bit about how long you're holding your, your investments for in different parts of the cycle. Right now, it's, it's all 10-year-plus holds. Yeah, I don't believe in a three-year exit. I think anyone that buys today with a three-year horizon, unless you bought a distressed deal, um, which which I can elaborate on a deal we did recently about a year ago, which has a four-year horizon investment horizon on it because it was a distressed deal. But but that aside, I think anything you do now when you you're trying to do a value add deal and you're buying a five cap in Dallas, Texas, and you're going to put uh, you know five or ten thousand dollars a unit into it and get your rents up thirty percent, I think that you're going to be selling it into a soft market, expanded interest rates, expanded cap rates, softer occupancy. I just think you're going to give it all back and, and you're going to be, you're not going to be able to exit in three years. So we're, our 10 year horizon is resulting in two things. Number one, the fact that we're not in a situation where we have to sell anytime soon. We don't have a fund. Our, 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 we use our own capital and high net worth capital and it's all very patient money. Um, so, we want to hold deals long term. Our investors want us to hold deals long term. They want to they want to own a deal ten years from now and be generating a twenty plus percent cash on cash return from an investment made a decade prior. So we we're we're really focused on just patient, uh, methodical long term holds, newer vintage deals, deals that have pop up side pops because maybe affordability restrictions burn off. So you know we're we're in this for the long haul. Get, ten get, year high. Ten year high. Get, 
Get rich slow, right? That's the uh, that's the motto. That, that's what I say all the time. <laughs> if, if you if you protect your downside in real estate, you're guaranteed to get rich slow. Right, and that sort of segues into to one of my my final questions or wrapping up the show is how are you structuring your deals these days to minimize that risk to your investors to make sure you are hitting those double digit cash on cash in five to ten years um, after you've held the property for that long. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's all about protecting that downside. So one way to do that is through leverage. It's a very simple, simple opportunity. I mean, it's a very simple method. You're giving up upside. So some people will look at our investment opportunities and say, well, Jason, I, 12 IRR, you know, over 10 years that I could do better. I could get a, I could invest in a, in a deal I've seen that's going to give me high teens to a 20% internal rate of return. I go, well, you know, go for it. And then, you know, I look at the books and that they'll, they'll send me and, and you see that these, you know, the, the sponsors of these deals are projecting five-year, you know, five-year horizons where they're going to sell deals at six caps and they're going to in, increase rents by 50% and they're 83% leveraged. We don't do that. We're, we're looking, we're, we're underwriting our deals with 65% leverage. We get more interest only as a result of that. And, and I don't love interest only. I'd rather pay down debt, but it, it, it gives us much more coverage over the you know debt service ratio coverage. So uh, and, and we're only underwriting two two and a quarter percent rent growth throughout the uh, per, per annum over a ten year horizon. I, I just don't believe that you're going to see. And we by the way we may see zero percent in negative years. So I, that's why I don't I just don't don't believe these these aggressive underwritings where you see five and six and seven percent annual rent increases. You're going to give it back just as a function of market forces. So. Low leverage, I think, is key. Patient capital, proper capitalization. Are you seeing any, um, or you underwriting in your deals, uh, a, a cap rate? You might have picked it up at five and a half, and you're selling. You're projecting you're going to sell it at like a six point two five. You know, like seventy bips to hundred bips higher. Being conservative in your underwriting, is there any sort of function of that that you're adding in? Yeah, I mean, look, we always underwrite cap rate expansion, but but the thing is, when you're looking at a ten year hold. And you've got capital that you have investors who are less focused on the IRR as they are on things like the ROC or the cash on cash. It doesn't matter what your exit cap is. So, so we put in, if we buy a deal at a six and a quarter, we'll put on an eight exit cap. First of all, we would never sell a, a deal at an eight. We would just continue to hold it. So, but if you, if you made that eight and nine, it's, it's going to have a very modest, change to the overall IRR because it's a long-term hold. When you're looking at three and five-year holds, that exit cap rate is everything. Our yields are derived from cash flow predominantly. Completely agree. Just quickly elaborate on that little distress deal that you said you uh, you picked up last year and, and how that works into your, is maybe the, the, the oddball out in your thesis right now. Yeah. So a big institution was selling a 17 billion portfolio off market. 16 of the assets were core stabilized deals in core markets, and one asset was in Midland, Texas. And, and the buyer of the portfolio, they were selling the, the, selling the story that they've got this beautiful core portfolio, core portfolio, but the 17th asset was kind of a thorn in their side. So they told the seller, we can't buy this deal. Uh, they couldn't even get finan- you couldn't even get financing on this deal in Midland, Texas. The oil oil prices were sub thirty dollars a barrel. Unemployment rate in, in, in Texas markets were, were through the roof. Um, in ta- I'm sorry, in, in oil towns, not in Texas markets, we're through the roof. So uh, we were able to pick up the deal at a, a pretty much a 50, 50, cent, uh, 50 cents on a dollar to the seller's basis. And we knew that our occupancy and rents were going to fall off a cliff. They were in the process of doing that. We went to 50 lenders and 49 turned us down. We finally got one of our 
uh, relationship balance sheet lenders to say yes at a 50 to a 55% leveraged loan, which was which was fine. So it was a, it required a large equity check, and um, so it was a, an issue with with economic distress in a specific market. And we bought the property. Occupancy hit 78%, and we're currently 99% occupied. It's unbelievable. So the you know the oil towns have come Midland, Texas, the Permian Basin. Our thesis there is that that's ground zero for. Uh, U.S. oil production. It's the cheapest place to extract and distribute oil um, and send it downstream in the continental United States. We, 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 our bet was that it was going to come back and it's come back roaring and we'll probably sell that asset in the next year or two because we don't want to take a long-term uh, risk and exposure to a market uh, that has a single economy. Right. I completely agree with that. Good, good advice. Uh, speaking of advice, do you have any takeaway tips um, or advice for those guys out there right now looking to get into the multifamily space, given where we are in the economic cycle? Yeah, start small. I mean, you know, even even we're an established company. You know, you mentioned earlier, I've acquired 25,000 units, billion and a half dollars of value. Um, I My route started with an eight unit building. And, you know, if this was three, four years ago, I wouldn't look at a deal that was less than a $25 million deal. I'm buying, uh, I'm getting on a plane to go to North Carolina to look at a six and a half million dollar deal. I'm buying a deal right now in Orange County for $6.1 million. Make small bets. Um, it just limits your exposure to any one asset. Um, if you're getting into the business, just get smart now and, and, and be disciplined and make some mistakes, but make, make mistakes making relative small bets. Six million to some people is a lot, but in relation to what we've done and in, in the size of deals we've done in the past, it's very small for us. So. We're making small bets this late in the cycle. Nice stuff. So last question, mate, before we, we dive into the final round is what does the future hold for post-investment personally, um, you know, sorry, not personally, but professionally, your, your business, but also personally as you grow uh, into a, a, new, a new cycle? Uh, what does it hold? Um, I'm in this for the long haul. 42 <laughs> years old. I've been doing this since I'm 27. And, uh, you know, I want to do this until uh, until the day I die. So we're, we're slow and steady, uh, continuing to grow, continuing to expand upon the types of investments we make uh, within real estate, of course, and you know more specifically within the housing because that's just what we know. But um, you know, slow and steady growth um, and patience, discipline. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Well, mate, at the end of the show, I always ask my entrepreneurs to give me their top five investing tips. You ready to dive into it? Sure. Mate, what is a daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Structure, that's first and foremost. I'm, I'm big on structure. My wife hates it, but very, uh, very strategic and structured. We talk about it all the time. Uh, I get in early. I get in before everyone else. Um, I'm usually in the office by 6.45 or 7 a.m. I leave early before anyone else, but I'm in early, so there's less distractions. I go through my emails. I go through my things to do and my goals for the week and the day, and, and also have my annual goals kind of not too far from me. But that that's structure and getting in early and getting organized early are the, the most important things. Consistency, you know, all, all of Love That's it. the most important thing. Love it. I, lo I love the early riser, right? And I'm sure you're a big fan of uh, jotting all your stuff down, getting it out of your head and onto paper to make sure you're hitting those goals each and every day, right? That's the day up. <laughs> Mate, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Yeah, I mean, I'd say there's a couple people there. Um, my, dad's, uh, my dad's most successful friend growing up was, uh, was in a real estate syndicator. And this was, you know, before anyone really even knew what real estate syndication was. So it put a bug in the back of my head. So I always knew I was an entrepreneur. I always knew I wanted to be in business. It was a function of 
of of of what the industry was going to be. So I always had that little bug in the back of my head that real estate syndication is a way to make money and do well. So I'd say that individual is one of them. And then the other one I would say is is a gentleman I, I work very closely with at Post Investment Group, one of my partners at Post, who really taught me how to see the glass half empty. So I'm a I'm an optimist. All you know, most entrepreneurs are. You have to be, mm-hmm. but you also have to protect your downside. So I would say that this individual really taught me how to see the bad in deals and protect our downside. You know, I joke or we joke that you know he's cost us a lot of money and a lot of success, but that he's also saved us from a lot of uh, a lot of failure. So it's kind of a you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a good dynamic that we have. Um, so I'd say those are probably the two most influential people in my career. I'm self-taught in the business, by the way. I, I've, no one's taught me this business. So I can't say that there's anyone that specifically was my mentor. But I would say those are two very influential events. Nice. Or awesome. Situations. What is the most influential tool in your business? I'm sure you'd have to have one, you know, growing your company to $1.5 billion in worth of real estate. There has to be something that's helped you along the way um, to get to that point. Yeah, it's hands down. It's a team we have. There's no doubt. I mean, we take pride in our team. It's cohesive. It's, we've been, we have incredibly low turnover. Um, You know, we, um, you know, we're very methodical in the hires we make and the people we add to the team. It's incredibly important uh, for an entrepreneur like myself, who's constantly out turning over stones, trying to find the next opportunity to have a team that's with me, that's um, helping us identify opportunity and then closing it, managing it and unlocking value. Nice. There's no question about it. Nice. How many people in your team today? Uh, we've got about 20 of us at the corporate level. Nice. Good stuff. Uh, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? Yeah. So uh, it's, I was, People ask me to speak oftentimes, and they'll, and they'll say, it, what I like to speak about is not, not all the money we've made, but about the money we've lost. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, one number of years ago, I spoke to the USC Emerald program, and, and, and I brought in this very simple spreadsheet that lined up three deals that I had done, all in the city of Houston, all 1970s construction, all were distressed when we bought them, and uh, all around the same time frame. And one deal we killed it on. We made a fortune. The other deal was a mediocre deal, and the third deal was a disaster. And the theme was very simple. We, the deal that was a disaster, we used high leverage, hard money. It was a bad market. It was a bad vintage. It was, you know, comparative to the deal that was, was a mediocre deal where same concept, bad market, 70s vintage, um, but we had 50% leverage with the bank. So we basically bought our way out of a bad investment by having very low leverage comparative to the deal with a high leverage, high interest rate. And then the third deal that we killed it on was in a great market in Houston. It was in the Galleria. So, you know, the, the, the analogy there is, um, you know, my, my biggest failure was doing a bad market, 1970s construction in a, in a marginal market like Houston with high leverage, hard money loan. I'll never do any, I will never borrow hard money again, by the way, especially in a high leverage nature. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's an incredible uh, three three side by side analysis because it can definitely you can reflect on what you did wrong, and I think that's part and parcel of great thing about being an entrepreneur and having those failures because you can look at it and say, okay, what the hell happened here? Oh, this happened. I'm never going to do that again. So awesome stuff, Jason. If people want to reach out to you, where can they reach you to continue the conversation if they do have any questions? Yeah, email me, Jason at postinvestmentgroup.com. Awesome. I, uh, I love talking to people and um, you know, love comparing notes and uh, telling people 
talking about the business. Nice, nice stuff, Mark. Well, Jason, you've certainly provided some incredible advice and there's a couple of takeaway pieces of advice that I just want to elaborate on. I think the biggest one for me was protect your downside. Always understand that those, you just said those three deals that you compared side by side. In the in the best deal you had, you know, sorry, in the worst deal you had the, the high leverage. You didn't protect your downside. Uh, the other two couple of things that I, w- I wrote down earlier in the piece was that, you know, Look at those those uh, those metrics in the unemployment, high rates, high occupancy, uh, and low unemployment. We are in a certain we are in a certain cycle, in a point in the cycle, and I want everyone to understand that. Be careful moving forward. Uh, understand you're you're protecting your downside. Uh, Jason, did I leave anything out? I think that covers everything. All right, mate. Well, look, I thank you so much for your time. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode with an extremely talented, experienced, humble entrepreneur as such as Jason. I learned so much from that episode with, with him. If you do have any questions, he is a wealth of knowledge, self-taught as well, which I really want to emphasize. Hit him up at his email. You can find that email on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. Remember, if you do have any reviews for this show or any comments, please jump on my website, leave the show uh, a comment or a review on iTunes. Let me know how I'm doing and how we can continue getting incredible people like Chasen. I'm attracting these types of people because they want to be on this show. They want to give you guys the best information that is out there right now so you can all make the right investing decision. I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about on this show. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.